I could have used a video this morning. Because if you go on YouTube or if you watch America's Funniest Videos or any of those shows like that, looking to find a video that shows someone trying to help somebody else get out of a predicament, but using less than significant means, uh, and it ends in a failure. There's all sorts of those videos. And if you watch them, you can actually learn a life lesson. And, and the life lesson is that certain situations require specific solutions uh, or specific means. Uh, imagine someone trying to save somebody else from a perilous condition, but using less than reasonable means. Someone's drowning. Someone else walks by and notices the person drowning, thrashing their arms and offers them a glass of water because they got to be thirsty from all that thrashing. Or imagine someone floating on some thin ice wanting to be rescued, and so someone offers them a space heater because they've got to be cold sitting out on that thin ice. Or someone's stuck in a house that's on fire, and someone offering them wood so they can start to rebuild the house while it's burning. We think of those things, and they're crazy. They're ridiculous. Like, obviously, you're going to throw a rope to someone who's on thin ice. Uh, you're going to throw a life jacket to someone who's drowning. You're going to call 911 for someone who's stuck in their house uh, that's on fire. And so, you think of those things and you go, okay, that's just silly. But how silly is it when we reach out to someone who doesn't know Jesus with a message that doesn't point out the way to salvation. The last couple of weeks, I've, I've been talking about the fact that what makes a church effective, what makes us as followers of Jesus effective, is when we understand our purpose, that our true calling is to be disciple-makers. But equally true is this, what makes a church effective, what makes individual followers of Jesus effective, not only is that we understand our purpose, but we understand our message. We understand the message that makes disciples, that, that we understand the solution to the specific problem. And what's that solution? We've heard a lot about it this morning. It's the gospel. Paul, writing to the Romans, says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. God takes people who are dead and gives them life through the gospel. There is no other way. What makes the church have power is the gospel. Only God can cause true growth, and He does it, according to Paul in Romans, through the gospel. And yet it's that very gospel message in all of its fullness that causes some of us to hesitate sharing our faith. Perhaps we don't share our faith at all. Perhaps we, we downplay or, or water down the gospel message. Or maybe we change the gospel message entirely. And why would we do that? Because for some of us, 
the gospel in all of its fullness is, is kind of an awkward message. It's harsh. It can be offensive. All that talk about sin and a cross. We're continuing this morning the series that we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jesus said go, so why do I say no? Why, why do we hesitate at times to share our faith? Why don't we share our faith as often as we could? And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first reason, maybe excuse, is that we fail to understand our purpose. That purpose being that we are called to be disciple makers. But this morning, I want to suggest that there is another reason why some of us don't share our faith as often as we could. Some of us hesitate to share our faith, or when we do share our faith, we only share certain parts. And that's, as I've said, is because the gospel message, we find it to be offensive and harsh. And we fear people's response. I remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, and a few years later, the, the Bible series that was on TV, and having conversations and hearing conversations from people who aren't followers of Jesus, who aren't regular churchgoers, talk about that movie and talk about that TV series and talk about how well, it was, how well done it was and how much they learned, and, and it was really interesting. But there was one comment that I heard a number of times. And that was that the crucifixion was so horrific and horrible. And you know, the temptation for us as Christians is to try to make Christianity more palatable. And you know, the Apostle Paul understood all about that. He said that he lived at a time where he was surrounded by people who were offended by the message of the cross. What Ben was talking about earlier. They saw it as foolishness. They saw it as a, a stumbling block. And Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians, and we read it, but I don't think we probably really understand the extent to which it was foolishness, and it was a stumbling block, and it was a, an offense to the people of Paul's day, to the people that Paul was preaching to. Historians tell us that the cartoonists of the day and the writers of the day ridiculed constantly anyone who would put their faith in a crucified criminal. And Paul could have done something about it. He, he could have avoided all the trouble. He could have done it by saying that the gospel was something different. He could have said that the gospel was much more prettier. Uh, he could have made it to seem a whole lot more glorious. And yet Paul faced the ridicule and the rejection and the disgust and the opposition and the hatred of the people of his day. And Paul was faced with the choice, do I water down the gospel? Do I change the message? Or I stick to the message of the cross. And Paul said that after considering it, that his intention was this, that I, I determine in the face of the worst cultural uh, prejudice imaginable, I determine to know Christ and to know Christ 
crucified. I came across this quote, and it says that when Christians try to eliminate the countercultural, unfashionable features of the biblical message because those features are unpopular in the wider culture, for example, when we reduce sin to a lack of self esteem, deny the exclusivity of Christ, or downplay the reality of noble, absolute truth, we've done nothing less than compromise the gospel message. When we accommodate our culture by jettisoning key themes of the gospel, such as suffering, humility, persecution, service, and self-sacrifice, we actually do our world more harm than good. I've been saying over the last couple of weeks that the goal of this series is, is quite simple. I want us to be honest, and I want us to acknowledge with, to ourselves, but also to acknowledge to God those reasons why we don't share our faith as often as we could. Those obstacles, the things that cause us to hesitate. And I want us to be able to acknowledge them so that we can simply hear Scripture talk to those reasons that we have. And to see what Scripture has to say. And some of you have asked, well, when are we going to get more practical? When are we going to talk about the how-tos of sharing our faith? And that excites me that some of you are interested in that because that's exactly where we plan on going. We're going to have a Christmas series in December, and then in January, we are going to spend some time here on Sundays talking practically, practically about how to share our faith. Uh, and we're also going to be looking at offering uh, a few other things that Ben is probably going to explain over the weeks to come uh, that will be some practical resources, opportunities perhaps for you to invite friends uh, who don't know Jesus uh, so that we can partner with you in the how-tos. So that is coming. But, but our purpose for, for this month is just to look at what those reasons are and to see what Scripture has to say about them. And so this morning, we're coming to Scripture and saying, here's, here's a hesitation. Here's an obstacle. Here's something that keeps me from sharing my faith as often as I could. I find the gospel in its fullness to be a message that's offensive and harsh, not well received, and I fear what I might do if I actually shared the gospel in its fullness to my friends and to my neighbors and to my family that don't know you. And here's Scripture's response. It's this, that despite our hesitation, despite our temptation to water it down, to make the gospel something different than it is, it is only the gospel in its fullness as revealed in Scripture which will truly lead a person to salvation, to understand how they can have a right standing with God. How does a person have a right standing with God? As I was working on this, and, and I was going to speak on Ephesians. That's one of the problems of telling the praise team leader what you're going to do on Monday or Tuesday. And then by the time I get to Sunday, I changed passages. So I'm going to be referring to Ephesians 2, uh, but I'm going to be looking at Romans chapter 3 this morning. Because it hit me. Perhaps one of the reasons some of us don't share our faith is because we really don't understand the gospel message in its fullness. It's never really been spelt out to us. How, how can a person be right with God? What is the gospel message in all of its fullness? 
And I thought just a short passage that really spells it out is Romans chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 21. So if you've got your Bible, turn to it. If you've got a pew Bible and you could just yell out the number so everyone else can be on the same page. Romans 3, anyone have a pew Bible open that quick? 9.13. Ken wins the sword drill. Romans 3, and we're just going to look at 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so how can someone have a right standing with God? Well, I believe that the gospel message starts with God and understanding the nature of God. You know, I find it interesting and in, in, in a strange way, funny, I guess, that, that people want to be right with God. That's our desire. We wrote names on cards last week, if you were here, for, for, for people that you were hoping for the opportunity, praying for the opportunity, the elders are praying for those cards, that you would have an opportunity to share your faith with those people. And uh, we will continue to pray for that. But we have people on, that we've written on cards. We've got people whose names come to mind when we think of those who don't know Jesus and our desire for them is to come to know Jesus. We want them to be in a right standing with God. But, but I wonder, how well do we know God? Because the gospel begins with understanding the nature of God. Because it's only through understanding the nature and the character of God and what makes God God that we can understand what's involved in having a right standing with God. And so from Romans chapter 3 and from Ephesians chapter 2 and, and all sorts of other places in Scripture, we can learn a lot about God. And I'm not going to take the time to give you an exhaustive uh, uh, presentation uh, on the perfections of God, His characters and, and His attributes, but, but there's a few that I do want to mention quickly. And I want to encourage you if you've got the bulletin in front of you, there's a space to write. If you like writing in your Bible, you want to grab the piece of paper that's on the pew. Write these things down, not because it's profound for me, but because it's just, I want to simply walk you through some things from Scripture so that when you're sitting down with someone and you need to explain the gospel in its fullness from start to finish in a, in a hopefully a, a, an easy to understand way, uh, that, that you can write these points down. I found these helpful and maybe you'll find these helpful too. And so the first thing is, let's just talk about God's nature. What do we know to be true about God? And Scripture tells us, first of all, that God is infinitely perfect. And some of this stuff is going to be a repeat uh, of what Ben has already shared with us. So I think that's okay. And I'm not going to not say some of the things I planned on saying because Ben has already said it. So first thing, God is infinitely perfect. There's no defect in God. There's, there's nothing that needs improvement, but, but where it's important to understand that God is perfect is this, that 
uh, it's God's perfection, no flaws, no defects, that sets the standard for, for our character and what's expected. The, the God's requirements of us flow from His perfection. So God is infinitely perfect. Secondly, God is completely holy. And uh, that means, first of all, that, that He's totally separate, totally unique to His creation. But it also speaks about His purity and His goodness. God is unblemished and unstained by the evil and the sin in this world. So He's infinitely perfect, completely holy, and thirdly, that because He is holy, He can't allow evil into His presence. In fact, God is repulsed by sin. He can't look at sin. In fact, He has to turn His back to sin. So He's perfect, He's holy, He can't tolerate evil in His presence. Fourth, God is righteous, which simply is His holiness applied to His relationships with others. Everything that God commands is right. God will never act against His perfect law. Everything He does, everything He says is in accordance with His righteousness. So He's perfect, He's holy, He can't tolerate evil in His presence. He is righteous. Finally, God is just. He operates His kingdom on the basis of His perfect law. And He expects that those who are going to follow Him will conform to that perfect law, to those perfect standards. And if we can't, He has to deal with it because He can't tolerate it. And so that's the God that we desire to be in relationship with. And by being right with God, we receive eternal life and and abundant life. And it's important that we understand the nature of God because it's against the backdrop of His nature and His character that we can determine our standing in and of ourself before Him. Many of us know people who've never darkened the door of a church, who don't really know anything about the gospel, wouldn't even know what the word gospel means, good news, doesn't really understand a whole lot about God. And yet they would tell you that I'm okay with God. I'm good. Because I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, or I do this, and I do this, and I do this. I'm okay with God. But how do they really stand up? How does any of us really stand up against the backdrop of the nature of God and who He is? This this perfect and holy and righteous and just God. Well, Paul explains in in Romans chapter 3 how we stand up. He's he's talking to those who who are trying to say, you know what, I'm okay because I follow the law. I'm good with God. In verse 10, so we're going to go back a few verses, see what Paul has to say about that. He says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
There's no one that has a right standing with God. If you're trying to earn a right standing with God on the basis of who you are, what you've done, what you don't do, how good you are, how nice you are to people, not going to cut it. And he backs it up in verse 23. He says, no one's righteous. No, not one. No one has a right standing. Why? Verse 23, all have sinned. All of us. Doesn't matter who we are. Doesn't matter where we come from. Doesn't matter the social status, the class, the race. All of us have sinned. Each and every one of us has thought something, has done something, spoken something that doesn't live up to God's perfect standards. And Paul says no one's righteous. No one has a right standing in and of themselves. Why? Because we've all sinned. And then the third thing he says, and there's a penalty. There is a price to be paid for our inability to live up to God's perfect standards. Because God can't be in relationship with someone who has the stain of sin on them. In fact, He has to deal with that stain of sin. And it's at this point, some of you are going, that's why I can't share that with my friends. Because that sounds like a real harsh and offensive message. Remember when Ben, when you started sharing, and uh, you said that, that we come here to remember the, the greatest event in history, or ho- however you worded it, the most pivotal moment in history, the cross of Christ. And, and I... I took a breath. Because I'm going, I wonder how many people are sitting here going, okay, that, that's the greatest event in history? Someone dying on a cross? How morbid. And, and so we hesitate to share that. But before you hesitate and you leave here and go, I'm never sharing that gospel message. Let me continue, because I left out one very important attribute of God. And that is that God is love. In fact, at the very core of his being, God is love. And he loves to show his compassion and his grace and his mercy to those who are lost and who are not in relationship with him. But that brings up a problem. And I've shared this problem with you many times before. How does a God who is perfect and holy and righteous and just, who can't tolerate sin, who can't condone sin, who can't sweep sin under a carpet, it has to be dealt with, it has to be obliterated, this problem of sin. How can that God also be a God of love who desires to be in relationship with those who are far from Him? And that's problem brings us to the core of the gospel. And the core of the gospel is the cross. That's why Paul preached the cross of Christ. Because the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God finds its resolution with the love of God at the cross of Christ. Because the cross became a place of judgment. At the cross, Jesus paid the price for our penalty 
of sin. And we miss it when we read verse 21. But when we ask that question, how can someone have a right standing with God? The triumphant answer is God has provided a solution. And in verse 21, that's how we're supposed to read it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says the solution has nothing to do with human effort. And it's for all who would believe. And it's a gift. It's not something that we work at to earn. It's not something we receive because we're worthy or we, we, we earned it. We've done something to, to achieve it. It's simply a free gift. That God is offering a solution to us through the cross. And it was costly. As we, we heard, as we celebrated communion this morning, it cost God the Father the life of His Son. That God the Son came to this earth to seek and to save those who are lost, and that seeking and saving led Him to a cross. And He died on a cross. And as Ben reminded us this morning, all of what I'm going to say and uh, from here at this point is validated by the fact that Jesus rose again. But he died on the cross and in these, these verses that we've read this morning, Paul says that it's because Jesus died on the cross. He's our substitute. We couldn't do it. We couldn't pay the price. We can't live up to these perfect standards. That's the only way you could be in a right standing with God apart from Jesus is if you were perfect. And, and I'm pretty sure none of us are perfect. But Jesus was, like Ben reminded us this morning. And so Jesus, He became our substitute. He took our place. And Paul says, He became our Redeemer. To redeem something means to pay the price to free someone from something else. And Jesus paid the price for our sin. Paul in Romans 6 says that the, the price of sin for those who don't go to Jesus for the solution is death. But Jesus paid the price fully and completely so that our debt that we owe because of our sin has been eliminated. It's been dealt with. So Jesus is our substitute. He is our Redeemer. And then Paul says He is our sacrifice of atonement, which simply is, I shouldn't say the word simply because theologians love to go really deep on this one, but, but for now, simply is that Jesus satisfied the righteous demands of God for sin by being our substitute and dying on the cross for us. And this, this is the key. Remember God. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's holy. He can't tolerate evil in His presence. And by dying on the cross, Jesus is our substitute, our redeemer, our satisfier of God's righteous demands. And He is our righteousness. It says that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and what He has done, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and credits it, credits it 
to our account. Remember I said, God can't be in a right relationship with someone who is stained by sin. But when he credits the righteousness of Jesus to my account, when he looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus is credited to my account. And I can be in right standing with God. And, and God can say, you are justified. Which means you are innocent. I declare you innocent. Not because of anything I did, but because I put my faith and my trust in what Jesus did. And that is the gospel message. And I got to tell you, I hesitated on doing this message this morning. Not because I was worried about sharing it with you, but I was worried that some of you are going to go, okay, I've heard this before. It's so academic, all these different points. But I persevered for a couple of reasons. One is because I think it's absolutely essential that if you are a follower of Jesus who's called to make disciples, that you understand the gospel message. That you understand that God is perfect and He is righteous and He's holy and He is just and He can't tolerate sin. And that we, in contrast, are all these things that I just mentioned. But that God offered a solution in Jesus Christ. And we can have a right standing with this holy and perfect and loving God because He provided the solution in Jesus. And I want you to be able to share that with those that you are praying for the opportunities to share your faith, that you will boldly share the gospel in its fullness because it's that which will lead a person to salvation. I also persevered because I know there's a few people here this morning and this is all new to you. And my prayer was for this series that as we as followers of Jesus were willing to acknowledge those things that, that cause us to hesitate to share the faith, and then we hear what Scripture has to say, that Scripture would also speak to some of you who don't know Jesus. And that you would, you would get a glimpse, that, that the lights would come on, and you would see what God has done through Jesus for you. And that this offer of, of eternal life and abundant life and forgiveness and this declaration of innocence is for you. And we so much pray that you would accept that even this morning. And we would love to talk to you uh, after uh, if, if you are interested in, in knowing more about that. And then the final reason I persevered, and it really goes back to the passage from Ephesians 2. That's why I was going to speak on it, because Ephesians 2 kept coming to my mind, and I meditated on it, and something hit me in that passage that I've never really noticed before, because typically when I read Ephesians 2, or I've spoken on Ephesians 2, I typically stop um, at about verse 10. And it hit me as I meditated on verses 11 and 12, that this is another reality of life. When we don't take the time to remember who we were and, and what we were and where we were headed, we don't appreciate where we are now and who we are now and what we have now. And that, that's true in all different areas of life, but I really think it's true when it comes to the gospel message. And we are forgetful people. And that's why we do this every week. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because I know you're going to forget. It's not going to be at the forefront of your mind. And when we don't appreciate who we were and what we were and what we didn't have and where we were headed, then we don't appreciate all those things that we are now. And you know what that causes us? It causes us to minimize who Jesus is. 
Because when we appreciate who we were and what we, what we were and where we were headed, we come to recognize and realize afresh what a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful hope we have. And, and that will motivate us and that will give us the desire to share who we are and what we have and what our hope is to those that we know who don't have that, who are way back where what we were and, and what we didn't have. And so the verses that hit me were verses 11 and 12. And it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called them circumcised by those who called themselves to circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And, and as I studied those two verses, I came to realize that the word remember there is, is a continuous action verb. It's present tense. And the command is for us to remember to constantly bring to mind who we were and what we were and where we were headed. That we were without hope. We were without God. We didn't have any of the promises uh, for us that are mentioned in Scripture. But we do have those because God. Because God sent His Son and Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven if we put our faith and our trust in Him. And as Ephesians 2 says, why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Praise team, let's, let's sing about some of those things.